Welcome to Counterintelligence. This is Eric LeVay. Today's guest is NYU professor Jeremy Levine. Thank you to Patreons Dana Berry, Andre Dunka, William Healy, Angela Jackson, Zacharias Zskor Kaminsky, Sasha Millstone, Craig Pierce, and Greg Schneider. This is Eric LeVay, and this is Counterintelligence. Jeremy Levine, welcome to Counterintelligence. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank hey, you. It's great to have you. Jeremy, you're a professor at NYU, and you teach an absolutely uh, fascinating course, which I'm just going to read from... Russia with Love, The Mueller Investigation and the Transformation of American Politics. Is that right? Yes. Yep. That's the course. How did you come up? I mean, it's actually, I want to ask you something. Are you, I don't know if you know the answer to this. Are you the first professor to teach a course uh, about the Mueller investigation? That's a good question because I feel like I've seen um, others like Asher and Gopa and others like teach classes about some of the Russian disinformation tactics, social media things, but as far as as the investigation itself, I haven't seen anything that solely focuses on that, so possibly? Yeah. Uh, tell us about your course. I mean, it just sounds absolutely fascinating. I'd, we'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, so it's a, it's a five-week course. Uh, it just ended uh, two weeks ago, oh, wow. uh, and it's at NYU, so the School of Professional Studies, and it just breaks down every single aspect of the Mueller investigation and the Trump-Russia story. Because when I was first putting... It together as a lecture. It was before the Mueller report came out. So it wasn't, I guess, entirely clear what counted in his scope and what counted beyond his scope. So there are some things I talk about that aren't in the Mueller report. Uh, Maria Butina, the NRA, uh, things like that. Uh, Jamal Khashoggi, another one. Um, but basically, it just breaks down um, the events leading up to his uh, Mueller's appointment, um, the actual uh, document produced by Rosenstein and everything. Then it breaks down the constitutionality of such an appointment for a special counsel. And then it kind of just gets into uh, Trump's history with organized crime, his uh, strange trips to Russia in the 80s and the 90s, and everything that kind of led to event his eventual presidential run. And then it kind of just gets into all the different cast of characters that have been indicted, investigated, from Manafort to Rick Gates to Flynn to Papadopoulos, uh, Kushner, I talk about Junior, the Trump Tower meeting, the NRA, everything's covered one way or another. I feel like this course could just literally never end. I mean, you can just probably keep teaching it for the next 50 years, changing, just adding new characters, uh, don't you think? It's very possible. And I remember when I was first putting this lecture together, I didn't realize even myself how much there would be. And I, like, from teaching... The other classes that I teach, like there are plenty of things like I have to add, like screenshots of my phone or like it's the best technology to keep up with everything. But even me being behind on things, uh, I still have over 300 PowerPoint slides and like a bibliography that's over 50 pages uh, double space. So it's a it's a massive thing. And you're right. There's always something else or someone to add as a result of this. And then even like we also I also address questions like about the grand jury material, how can it be seen by the House of Representatives? Can a sitting president be indicted? Where does that guideline, that principle uh, even come from? So it, it does get a little legally and a little uh, technical, but it covers a lot of different things. There was a new story breaking just before I called you for this show, so I haven't really had a chance to look at it, but more or less it's in the Wall Street Journal that – I guess the Trump campaign, uh, you know, was broke as usual. And it sounds like Facebook actually extended them a line of credit uh, at which they were hesitant to do 
uh, during the 2016 campaign because they knew that they might get stiffed. And it sounds like Brad Parscale basically said, extend us the credit or Trump's going to go on TV and say that you are unfair. Uh, just another development. I don't know if you saw that. It was like 10 seconds ago. Um, just a, no, yeah. I missed that. It just came out. Just another development. I mean, we'll be learning things for the next 50 years that we didn't know about this. Uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sure. Uh, yeah. I, Facebook perplexes me, or these social media companies perplex me. That's probably the most confusing part, because I feel like their long-term interests would be the expansion of democracy and human rights and free speech around the world. Uh, not, not that they should be like political organizations, but if you had free speech and expression in China and Russia and the Middle East and other parts of the world that are more totalitarian, I mean, you're talking a lot of money that these companies can be made, and yet they seem to be used to uh, really go against all those kinds of things I just said, it seems like they're putting like short-term profits and short-term financial gains, like profiting off disinformation campaigns, rather than their long-term focus, which should be the expansion of the very things that Putin and others seem to be trying to undermine. So they, those companies kind of perplex me. And I've always wondered, um, given that the long-term interests seem to be ignored, just how long is Mark Zuckerberg and some of these people going to be CEOs of the very companies that they founded. Like, how long is it before the board, maybe like a light bulb goes on with the board of directors and says, maybe we should switch gears and try to protect free speech and honesty and everything authoritarians don't like? Right. We learned the other day, I think from NBC News, that Zuckerberg has met at least once, I'm sure you saw, with Trump at a, and we all, you know, at a private dinner with Trump, that's, alarm bells start going off right away. But of course, you know, the, what it reminded me of was when he wanted to meet with Comey. It's like, it's not a good, it's not a good situation. There's no good reason for those two to meet that can help this country. Uh, I don't know. If no, you have, not yeah. at all. And yeah. like, and I get the, the Zuckerbergs and the Bezoses and many uh, of Google and all these companies, the CEOs maybe don't want like Elizabeth Warren winning or Bernie Sanders winning. Like maybe you don't want antitrust legislation smashing your companies and breaking them up. But there's a happy medium that should be found here between maybe not wanting antitrust legislation being enforced against you and then embracing the far right that Trump seems to have bring. And that middle ground that Silicon Valley should be able to find a home in just seems completely, they just have no interest whatsoever. Yeah, the irony is that the freedom that America has given, like let's say a Mark Zuckerberg to become who he is, uh, is the same freedom that now threatens the democracy. And they, they just, they don't understand what it's like. Like <laughs> Zuckerberg should like trade places with one of his Russian counterparts for a year and just see what it's like to be a billionaire under, under Putin. I don't think that, I don't think he would enjoy that very much. Oh, no, not at all. And even the whole thing where, like, he's like Trump voices displeasure and try to sink the stock price. I, to me, I was a finance major in college. My parents worked on Wall Street. That also sounds like potentially like you're going to short sell Facebook stock going into that meeting and then tank the stock and make money. That just <laughs> seems like a potential insider trading scandal, which is a whole other can of worms. Jeremy, I did want to ask you about a fascinating story that you've talked about uh, and you told me, which was that during the 2016 campaign, well, at that time, were you were you a registered Republican? 
uh, at that time? When I turned 18, I registered as a Republican, yes. Okay, so you've actually said that you were, you tell me if I'm right, did Paul Manafort offer you a job in the Trump campaign? The Trump campaign itself did. It's, it's kind of like a weird story, and I'm not really sure why I was offered even an interview, because I was, I registered as a Republican when I was 18. New Jersey, uh, just for, for those who aren't familiar, governors go back and forth between Democrats and Republicans. We, we had Chris Christie, now we have Phil Murphy. Uh, my county where I live is Democratic, but I live in a Republican town, even though my parents are. But like, so if you wanted to like get involved in politics, it was kind of like you just went the Republican way in this town. So like, I, was, I became friends with my mayor. And then when he became a state assemblyman, I was in high school. My last two years of high school, I interned in his office. And then in college, I interned for uh, the state Senate Minority Leader Tom Kane, the son of the former governor, Tom Kane, who was the head of the 9-11 Commission mm-hmm. and everything. So I just, like, found myself in Republican circles, almost like not meaning to, even though I voted for Obama in 2012, like the first presidential election I could vote for. Uh, and then when Trump ran, I was very outspoken early on and kept trying, especially with foreign policy trying to sound the alarm that something's off, something's not right with him and Russia. Like, I don't know what it is, but th- there's just something fundamentally off. And then in the summer, it was July of t- 2016, um, I received an email from the campaign. It was a real email. This woman, Emily, reaches out to me like, we have this interview, not this interview, this position. Uh, we'd like you to come to Trump Tower for an interview. Come here and talk about it. And I actually was just like, I ignored it for like two weeks. I'm like, absolutely not. I didn't even think it was worth a response. And then I eventually like responded like, absolutely not. And I said, that's in your racism, sexism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism. Absolutely not. I'm not becoming part of this. But part of my response also was your foreign policy about Russia concerns me. And the only thing I've ever been able to gather here is the job would have been at the headquarters at Trump Tower. And this was about a month before Paul Manafort steps down. So I probably would have been working under him mm-hmm. or within an earshot. Like, I, so I wouldn't have been there for that, uh, the, the June meeting with the Russians, but I probably would have been there for the August one, or at least in the vis- general vicinity with Joel Zamel and Prince and Nader. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I would have, in, in a way, been associated with Manafort one way or another. Had I probably taken that job, whatever it was. Yeah, you really, I mean, do, do you wake up nights just sweating, thinking about the opportunity, the great opportunity you missed to, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's unfortunate, like, because when you do these internships, like, that's part of it. It's all about, like, networking and moving up, and you never know who you're going to meet. So working on a presidential campaign, even if it's someone, like, I may not, like, totally line up with like even if you just do it for the experience you connect you never know along the way what might happen but like even i had a line like i'm not getting in this circus like even if i didn't foresee robert Mueller being appointed and putting you all in prison like i'm not getting in this circus so it was so yeah it's like my mother jokes around that i wouldn't have had money for grad school uh. and all that kind of stuff i'd be paying like legal fees or being like investigated uh <laughs> yeah so it's funny in that sense but it's also like sad in another like you do all this work and like that's the opportunity that it comes did you ever find out how they found you or what they wanted you to do exactly on the campaign or did it just just stop, just stop at the email it stopped at the email i never found out what the job was what also kind of concerned was i was recommended and i, <laughs> and I can't remember the name but i also don't have the email and i don't remember deleting i'm not saying my email was hacked i just like I can't find the email, and I also can't find my sent response back. It was someone who recommended me, and it was a name I wasn't super familiar with either. So part of me also found that a little 
suspicious. Like, what was I exactly yeah. getting roped into? Why? Because I was so associated everything. Like, it wasn't hard to figure out how I felt about him, why I was given even a potential interview to work for the campaign. So I don't know if they were just trying to, like, give me a job to shut me up. I don't know if I would have been, like, asked to do something illegal. Like, I don't know what it was, and I didn't want to find out. Yeah, and as we know, and it, it's they were at that time, they were scrambling. So I think they were probably looking for, like you said, on paper, I guess, you were still technically Republican. So maybe they were just, hey, like, let's get this this young guy in here. Uh, he's qualified. And they might not have even known the some of those things, uh, but who knows? It's very possible. A lot, like a lot of young people, like whoever ended up taking the job may not have been a bad person. Like I think about it, like I have student loan debt, like I have things that I have to pay off. Like I'm sure I could have used the job and the salary and like yeah. an opportunity again to like, you never know who you're going to meet. You might even end up in Washington maybe. So like there were reasons like even to, to consider it that I'm sure whoever ended up taking it took it so it's if i ever find out i will definitely let you know yeah. i haven't been able to find out the only the other thing that ever concerned me was after the report came out all the details even though a lot of their stuff is redacted with the internet research agency and the ira like all the activities they did to like plan events and recruit americans and find this like i really hope it wasn't something like that yeah well your background is not in uh it's not in like computer science or anything right so it probably no, yeah. no. It's just strictly like politics, business, rule, sociology, economics. That I thought, yeah, not computer science. Just curious. Yeah, well, they were hiring. There's sort of like two types of people who've worked for Trump, and there's a little crossover. There's the there's the this, the Paul Manafort types, or let's say for lack of the grifters who are just trying to get ahead, and then there's the uh, the ideologues, the the people who really believe it and. I don't know. The ideologues have always bothered me a lot more. I mean, the Manafort, as much as I don't like him, I, I sort of get Paul Manafort and I, I never felt like it was, you tell me what you think, but it never felt personal with Paul Manafort. I'm just like, this guy's a mobster. He's in it for the money. What do you think? I agree. I I agree. It's he's, yeah, he's basically a mobster in politics. So as long as you offer him a good amount of money, he'll do whatever you ask. Like, the very same Russians and Ukrainians he was helping, if someone offered him more to screw them over, he would have screwed them over. Uh, it's the ideologues, and I think it's also what concerned me, the people who I was always around who were never anti-immigrant or anti-LGBT or anti-all these things, all of a sudden became very extreme. It was like all of a sudden all the moderates that I knew just went mm. far off and became those very same ideologues that, like, Right before Trump, they always despise. So that was the part that also always concerned me. It's like, I'm not sure if you heard it, but when um, on the previous incarnation of the show, I had Rob Goldstone on. I don't know if you ever heard that one. Uh, but uh, author of the famous, uh, you know, the email that set up the Trump Tower meeting. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was actually an interesting interview. But the, the short of it is, is that Rob um, was just basically... Rob is not an ideologue. He was just doing his boss told him to write an email. And as with anyone who has a boss, the option was write the email or maybe not have a job. So he wrote the email. Right. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the, the, his book is actually a funny, it's, it's a pretty good book. But the, the, the point is, is that he was not in that camp, not to excuse working for these, um, these terrible people. And we talked about that too, but there were, he was in the other camp of like, Hey, I got to just, you know, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately had to <laughs> kind of pay the professional price and had to go in front of 100 grand juries. 
Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything, yeah. You get involved with the Aguilar, so yeah, you're gonna. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I wanna, said, yeah, yeah. I wanted to touch on the maybe the first the sort of blockbuster story that's in the Times, which is that we now have confirmation, although it was a little vague, that Russian intelligence has definitely created the Ukraine conspiracy story. I was wondering if maybe you could just uh, give us your thoughts on that. It makes sense. The whole thing for me, whether it's the Russians or Trump perspective, is about money. Mm-hmm. It's about money. It's about the sanctions. So Trump comes in and he wants to get rid of the sanctions right away. and It doesn't happen. The State Department employees, or however they did it, uh, prevent it from happening. And so he can't just lift the sanctions off without even raising suspicions. But if you can create a narrative where Ukraine either surrenders to Russia and gives up Crimea and maybe part of eastern Ukraine, or you can get Ukraine to accept responsibility for meddling the election instead of Russia, you give Trump an excuse then to take off the sanctions. The Russians are happy for money, and Trump can get, for also financial reasons, uh, his tower, the at least two projects that we know of, um, his towers off the ground in Moscow. Because to me, it's not about the Bidens. That's just another excuse. If you really wanted to investigate the Bidens and all these state companies in Ukraine and Russia, I mean, they could have done that when they had the majorities and everything. They didn't. And I always tell my students in the way business, like, don't get involved with Ukrainian and Russian businesses. But like, there's nothing illegal about it. Mm. You just might you might bump shoulders with some shady people. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that would have been like, Hunter Biden probably shouldn't have been involved with them, but being involved by itself isn't illegal. Uh, but that's, to me, what this is all about. An excuse to lift the sanctions. Even uh, you, withhold the, you withhold the weapons and the military assistance, uh, and you want them to investigate the Bidens. But if enough time passes and you're really struggling, you just might surrender then as well. There's also no guarantee that Trump will ever give you the weapons if you give him what you want. Mobsters aren't known to be <laughs> fair like that. So that's, to me, a lot of what this is about, is creating a narrative and driving a wedge between the U.S. and Ukraine so that way the sanctions against Russia in response for annexing Crimea and invading eastern Ukraine, all those sanctions, and maybe even the Magnitsky Act, although that's a whole separate thing, uh, can come off. And then that way the Russians can go about doing business like they were, and Trump can get his towers. That, to me, is what a lot of this is about. It's just, it's absolutely wild to hear, and maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but from reading reading that story in the Times, which, again, was a little, a little vague. It just says that basically uh, senators uh, have been briefed I assume it would be the intelligence committee on uh, that the the Ukrainian uh, conspiracy theory was invented by Russian intelligence, but that it's now traveled down and it's being pushed by the Republican Party. I mean, yes, that is absolutely insane. One of the things I've also stressed when I teach the class and I try to lecture about this is as much of a problem Trump is in many ways, he's not the problem he's a symptom i would say he's the worst of the symptoms given his the power that the office of the presidency has but that the party as a whole is a problem it it's never made sense to me for the republican party to be this blindly loyal to a man that really was only a republican like five minutes ago like if you actually look at how all the money he used to give the clintons the clinton foundation bill and hillary were at his wedding 
all the money he used to give to Charlie Rango and Harry <laughs> Reid and John Kennedy. And even if you look at like New York State donations, Democrats overwhelmingly in the state of New York received more money than Republicans. Uh, so th- this this whole blind loyalty and going as far as to push the same conspiracy theories that the Russians are peddling, uh, to me, whatever Trump is involved with, and there's many different things, the party as a whole is also involved with. Whether they were involved before Trump became a nominee, whether Trump brought them into it, whether it's they just all kind of met in the middle, the party to me is the problem. And when you go as far as parroting Kremlin rhetoric, and Trump does it all the time, whether it's Montenegro is going to start World War III, uh, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan uh, to fight terrorism, even though we armed the resistance under the Republican administration of Ronald Reagan. Uh, people forget that. Um, or now the latest, like, pushing these conspiracy theories. They have to come from somewhere, all these crazy things, and they're coming out of Russia. So, to me, there's a very strange relationship between the Republican Party and Russia. And political parties change. Like, the Republicans and Democrats 40, 50 years ago were not the same party that they are today. And there's reasons for parties to change. Uh, if you look at the Democrats, for example, you went from Sean Thurman and George Wallace to Barack Obama. Like, that's mm-hmm. a change. And the changes can be good. Changes can be bad. You might like the reasons. You might not like the reasons. And it happens. And people can switch political parties as well. Winston Churchill is famous for that. But when you, uh, the Republican Party, you go from Eisenhower and McCarthy and Goldwater and Reagan, like the Cold War, stalwarts to this. That's a very dramatic shift, and none of the reasons that have ever come out to explain such a change have been good at all. I am trying to think of it right now, and I I think of the, I don't know if you're a fan of the uh, HBO show The Wire, Um, Clay Davis. I've heard of it. I've seen episodes here and there. Yeah. The uh, one of the great portrayals of a corrupt politician, uh, Clay Davis, who was, I believe, played by, I think it's Isaiah Whitlock Jr. But anyway, he has a line on the show. He's like, I'll I'll take any motherfucker's money if he's giving it away. And I don't know, that just seems to summarize uh, this the party and, and Trump. You know, if you'll take anybody, if that's what it's just about money, then the money's going to come in from shady people like like Russian gangsters. It's uh, possible. They need to hide the money. We have all, because of Citizens United and everything, all the dark money now that's not even traceable. You don't even know where it's coming from. And if you just look at the behavior of the Republicans, the defenses, the excuses, I mean, they, they, they defy logic. Even how, like Devin Nunes, a dairy farmer, you, you make a dairy farmer from California, <laughs> the chair of the Intelligence Committee, and it doesn't matter what he does. It doesn't matter how ridiculous and corrupt he becomes. You leave him as chair the first two years of this administration. And then even after you lose the majority in the House, you keep him on the Intelligence Committee to just spew ridiculous conspiracy theories. And, like, why? Like, why does a dairy farmer from California mm-hmm. care so much about a corrupt mobster from New York? It, a lot of this just doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't. And I mean, to your point, the, the, I, I believe he's a congressman in the Central Valley. And if you've just, it, it just, you're right. I mean, you, you said it exactly right. By the way, I'd like to add, there was some good reporting that the farm, Devin Nunes' family farm is actually 
in Iowa, which they're hiding for some reason. Like I don't. I think I for, I remember you, reading that. Now that you mentioned it, yeah. Just another another just shady thing for some reason. At some point, they moved the farm, and I think they kept like a couple of patches of land or something. But whatever. So right, why is this guy who previously didn't appear to have much of a? I don't know. He had a, just a regular reputation, nothing bad or good. I mean, why is he flying all around the world and look like? I mean, we we know the expression on his face. It the man looks panicked. Uh, he looks like he knows he's going to be indicted soon. Like he looks <laughs> terrified, and that's what I mean. Him, Pompeo, Barr, like all these people are traveling all around the world to try to disprove and discredit an investigation, which on the surface should not involve them. Right. Uh, last night, uh, as we were saying, American Oversight, which does some great work, I believe I got that name right, they dropped uh, some a FOIA request on some new emails. Did you get a chance to, to see that story? I, I saw it, and I, was, I glanced through some of those emails a little bit. Okay, so I, there's like 100 emails, but the short of it is, for the listener, is that uh, now it ties Rudy Giuliani directly to Pompeo, Giuliani being looped in on everything uh, involving Ukraine, and especially on smearing the Yovanovitch. Uh, uh, right. Uh, so now we have uh, Pompeo directly tied in with Giuliani. It's just, every, it's just, it's, it's nonstop. It's uh, nonstop, and that was the that will when that was slowly starting to come out. The State Department and Pompeo were saying Giuliani was acting on his own, that he was just like this rogue agent doing all these things, and like that just it, that doesn't that narrative never made sense. You wouldn't give someone that much power and that much authority to do what he was doing in Ukraine without the State Department being at least somewhat involved. And the whole time, obviously, as far as I can remember, Pompeo's been saying, uh, I'm not involved, although you can't see the emails. And now uh, it's like, of course, yeah, you're like definitely involved. You're, you're, you're one of the players. Uh, yeah, he's one, and you have to ask why. What was the like? Oh, you became CIA director, and then you became the head of state department. Like, why would you get involved with this? You didn't need this. Like, everyone <laughs> involved didn't. Like, William Barr didn't need this. Pompeo didn't need this. Giuliani maybe needed this. I, what I usually say now is, when he who was the the involved with the SDNY going after the Italian mafia in the eighties, I think it's at least worth asking the question regardless of the answer, was he going after the Italians as hard as he was just because he was a prosecutor following the law? Or was he doing it on behalf of other entities, other actors? Because the Russians kind of like took it over. So was he doing it for them or was he doing it just as a prosecutor? At least worth asking. I can't believe you just said that because I literally, before this show, was composing, uh, well, now it just sounds dumb. I've been thinking about that for weeks and I was composing a tweet in in a parallel to I, I I couldn't agree with you more. Given the current behavior, it's time for journalists to re-examine Rudy Giuliani going after the mafia. Did because people don't really generally the arc of your life generally is sort of semi-consistent. So what I was thinking about was what happened with Whitey Bulger in Boston. That remember how that FBI agent he took down the Italian mafia at the behest of the Irish mafia. At the Irish, exactly. Yep. So uh, again, we're saying this. We're just throwing this out there, but it's a good question. Was was Rudy Giuliani? Did he have any ulterior motives back then? It's absolutely a fair question. I think uh, it is fair, and maybe it's because I live in northern New Jersey. I live 
20, 25 minutes outside of Manhattan. So, like, like I remember when Giuliani was mayor. I met him as a kid, though. That used to be a cool story. It's not a cool story anymore. <laughs> it's not what I go around and just brag and tell people anymore. But I think it's at least worth asking because how do you go from being this tough-on-the-mafia prosecutor to now just basically through front cash and all your other associates, you're basically on Simi Mugloyevich's and the Russian Mafia's payroll. That'd be like if Andrew Weissman all of a sudden was like helping and enabling a Fortune 500 company to like insider trade and like and and like money launder. Like you would ask right. questions, how did you go from putting Kenneth Lay and Jeffrey Skilling and Andy Fassler from Enron in prison to that? So I think it's at least worth asking with Giuliani, how did we get here or were we always here? Yeah, and, and like you said, it could just be in a relentless quest for power he saw his moment. And I, I think that's probably the most plausible thing. But I would I'd be very interested to know at the time when the when the um, New York Italian mafia was going down, did any other criminal organizations flourish? Uh, did you I don't know, do you have any knowledge on that? What who took, who um, took the Well one range? of the things I've noticed is in part of my research, as the Italians were being brought down, especially once Rico was passed in the 70s and in the 80s and early 90s with Mueller getting Sammy to bowl the flip on Gotti and all of them, was this was right around the time where the Soviet Union collapses and then Russia slowly starts forming into the kind of the mafia state that it is now. And, you know, one of the other things that the, the Russian mafia benefited from was 9-11 because the focus became more on terrorism, less on organized crime. There's been a lot of books and research about that. And everyone who ever seems to be involved with, with going after the Russians, whether it's McCabe, whether it's Bruce or Peter Strzok, all of them have seemed to become a target of this administration. And yet Giuliani is literally running around with the Russian mafia and is always praised by Trump for being his loyal friend and lawyer and all these different kind of things. And it just that that just seems very bizarre to me. But that's also why I think Giuliani was brought in, because if it does, if things escalate to the point with the Trump administration or the Trump organization where RICO charges are brought in, if there's one person who understands RICO laws, mm -hmm. it is Giuliani. Yeah. Today on, uh, he must have appeared on some Fox show, and I'm not sure if you saw, but he bas he actually said out loud, "I have insurance." Like he, he basically straight up said, "Like I have insurance policy on Trump, just in case," which was pretty amazing. I don't know if that's going to be a bigger story. Uh, I it could because I I think at some point he's going to be indicted at yeah. a minimum for FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. At a minimum, maybe more. And, you know, is he saying that so if something happens, he'll maybe get a pardon, which no one's got a pardon yet from Trump? Yeah. Um, but that because I think he sees it, whether, whether it's Pompeo or the House of Representatives, everyone now seems to be, like, defending Trump and just throwing Giuliani and everybody else under the bus. And if there's one thing I don't think Giuliani's willing to do is take all the blame yeah. for everything. So this is where you're going to start seeing a lot of finger pointing, a lot of running over people with buses, and this is where you're going to see that there's no real honor among thieves. But yeah, he was basically acting like a conciliary and shaking down the Don, saying literally the Don, like, don't, you know, don't sell me out. I know everything. It was something like out of the Godfather. 
Remember in that movie, uh, speaking of movies, and analyze this when Billy Crystal is trying to say consigliere and he can't, he can't say it. So yes, he, yeah. <laughs> the guy corrects him and he just slaps that guy in the face. Oh, man. Yep. So he's like, never correct me in front of the family. Um, I totally lost my train of thought. Oh, I was going to tell you. So I, I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually a northern New Jersey native. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, so I'm from Montclair. So I, like you, I mean, I remember – I remember Giuliani as a kid and I, a lot of people don't understand. Like also the guy was an absolute train wreck with the exception of a few things that we've discussed. I mean, and I don't, you, I don't know if you have any recollections as mayor, but I just remember so much bad press and he had such a bad relationship with so many different communities. And I, I want to say too, I read a story. I don't even remember this. There was apparently a, basically a riot by the New York City Police Department, they were upset about something, and he was, like, egging them on. Do you, do you remember that story? Wow. It no, was, I missed that one. But, yeah, he, 9-11 transformed his image. He went from being extremely unpopular to America's mayor in a snap of a finger. Right. So right. I agree he, with you on that. Even though he put the command center in the World Trade Center, probably causing countless chaos and, and whatever else, he, somehow that, that transformed his moment, uh, gave him a moment. Yep. Uh, which was, it's just, and now, uh, yeah, it's Shakespearean. Talk about a rise and fall. It's uh, a rise, and even I remember there was a, I think it was Latin, uh, yeah, 2018, he he attended a Yankees game, and they welcomed him, and he went from being cheered years ago, they booed him out of the stadium. <laughs> like, he's really fallen out of favor with even, like, Yankee fans in the Bronx of all people. Yeah, and I don't, like, my recollection, I don't recall Yankee Stadium. It's not, like, some bastion of liberal politics or anything like that. So they really... They really got to not like you over there to boo you out of the stadium. Exactly. It's not exactly like a high moral standard there of who they'll cheer for. And like <laughs> even he was getting booed. Yeah, it would be like if Spike Lee was getting booed out of Nick's game at the Garden. It was weird. <laughs> uh, as, a, as a professor who lectures on the Mueller investigation, I also wanted to ask you, it now looks like we're going to be seeing the Inspector General's report on the origins of the Russia investigation. And I was wondering, can you highlight a little bit about what it looks like we're going to be seeing from, from the New York Times? Um, it looks like a lot of nothing, to be <laughs> honest. Um, I, I, what I was reading is going to be some criticisms for the way the FBI acted and did a few things, which maybe under Comey's leadership might not surprise people, uh, at all on both sides of the aisle. Uh, but as far as the FISA's with Carter Page, they're not, they're, nothing's illegitimate, nothing's mm. illegal about them. Um, when Barr and Durham and people were traveling around the world, like even they found like CEO credible, even though that had nothing to do with the launch of the Mueller investigation. Um, it, it just seems like there, there's a lot of nothing. Uh, maybe they gave Trump a little bit where like, see, the FBI is doing this, the FBI did that. Like, he'll just, they'll just dramatize it on Fox and with our press, current press secretary. Uh, but there's nothing like no guilty verdicts are going to be overturned. None of the sealed indictments are going to be like done away with. Like it was, it's a lot. It was, that is a giant waste of taxpayer money. It's a lot of nothing. And if there was something, Trump would have already been screaming about it. Right. According, and we haven't, none of us have seen the report yet, but according to the reporting in the New York times, basically what it sounds like is that they dug and dug as far as they could. And they've turned up uh, nothing. They've turned up, there's 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 one low level FBI official who's going to be in trouble and that's fine if he if he did yep. something wrong he needs to be held accountable but exactly I, I, 
I couldn't believe what they were. They they the inspector general flat out says that they didn't even use the steel dossier for these warrants. Uh, I mean, it's like a bu- bursting a bubble. In, in yeah, and now all those conspiracies and narratives. I I mean, they're they're they they were never useful before, but they're really useless. They might still be pushed anyway, but. Uh, yeah, a, a big bubble burst. And now you have, wait, what's the next defense? Yeah, they flat out said that Joseph Mifsud is not a Western intelligence asset or whatever. It's funny. I already saw that they're starting to, like, Papadopoulos on Twitter is desperately t- trying to spin this. Uh, I guess it never stops. Oh, yeah. And he's like, I don't really get what he's doing because he eventually – cooperated i guess you could say um he got sentenced for two weeks his wife said he never did anything without campaign approval he was more than a coffee boy so like i if he ever thinks he's getting a pardon like it's not happening right. and i just like i don't get like i don't get the point of the book besides the fact that it was dishonest and of course mifsud wasn't a western agent like i don't get what he's trying to do exactly yeah, he. I guess he made a choice to jump on the the right wing grifter train, and I I think purely in terms of even money, it it's a poor choice. Even if forget about the moral aspect, he he could have easily you could take the John Dean route. That guy is on. He totally turned things around, but he chose to go the other way. People love John Dean now. Yeah, yeah they totally forget what he was initially part of. <laughs> yeah, and I bet and I bet just lucre. I bet just financially making the right decision has also been. I mean, I see him. He's a commentator. He look. No one else from Watergate. You don't really hear anything about. But John Dean uh, is still standing. Yeah, and he's written like a few books now. Like he's written a few books over the years. Like I have a couple of them. Often criticizing like what the Republican Party and conservative movement became post Nixon. But yeah, like when when John Dean speaks, like I actually want to hear what he has to say. When Papadopoulos or Simona speaks, I want to roll <laughs> my eyes. You know, they live like a block away from me. That's absolutely true. Oh, wow. Yeah, they, yeah, they really do. <laughs> they live a block of. We joke about it at a, a forensic news sometimes. Oh wow, awkward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, they'll. They, it's weird because if I was uh, involved in a, what what happened in 2016, I think I'd probably like lay low. But they, they want to be you know social media stars. They post photos at the restaurants in the neighborhood. You know. Yeah, I feel like I would lay low and like not live in California or just yeah. live in some random outskirt area. <laughs> and not just because of what happened, because I don't know, like people who end up on the wrong side of a a Russian operation, that's not really a good. You know, they some of them end up falling out of windows, and you know, there's a lot. Even when I like the amount of people dead in my in my lessons, it's actually astounding. <laughs> like wow. the amount of people who have been poisoned or fallen off a roof falling out a window, died of natural causes. Like, there's actually a lot of people. Yeah. Died of natural causes by falling out of the back of a truck with your hands tied yep. behind you. <laughs> it's yeah, like a- it's, just, it's just one crazy thing after the next. And for a country that wins always a ton of Olympic medals, I find it hard to believe that, like, everyone's just uncoordinated. I think the final thing that I want to ask you, and it's funny, it was going to be the first thing and then all these other things happened, but – we did go through week two and possibly could be the final week of the, um, at least this current incarnation of impeachment hearings. So I want to ask you, Jeremy, what did you think of week two? Um, explosive. Yeah. I think that's probably the best word I can think of. Um, I, I just think from one, I, as someone 
finally <laughs> became honest um, <laughs> and said everything. Uh, I'm amazed he hasn't been fired yet. I'm sure that's soon. Um, we now know that like Mike Pence knew and is involved, which is why I always been on the bandwagon. He's not going to be president. Um, yeah. uh, Fiona Hill just took everyone out along her way yeah. and just complete. And when we need people like that to speak up to actually address the threats that this country is facing, not the made up conspiracy theories. I, I, you could just see it on social, like Devin Nunez's face half the time. Uh, Jim Jordan's just screaming, like, they don't know what to do and what to say. But again, can you just throw in the towel already and yeah. just get rid of him and put, like, I don't want Pence as president, but, like, right. even before the impeachment hearings, why wouldn't you just want Pence to go in, mm. calm things down? He wants to repeal Obamacare just like everyone else. He'll give you your conservative judges. He'll pass the tax reform. Like, what would this Trump do that Pence wouldn't do, if not more so, in a calmer environment? And yet, no one wants to get rid of Trump or put Pence in, and I think that's because Pence isn't clean. So I think that was the big explosive part of week two. I couldn't agree more, and if I could just add one thing, I think it's because they're all not clean, to use your phrase. I think that's what this whole thing is about. Every time it's like you unravel, you pull a thread, and eventually it, we know it's dipped into the RNC itself and all these other big shots. And I, I think that's what it's all about. And also they know that I'm sure Trump would gladly take all of them down with them if he could, if he has to. Oh, yeah, they yeah. all know that. But that's, yeah, but that's, it, it, Pence is not Ford. Pence mm. is Spiro Agnew. There's a big yeah. difference in the in the comparison. Because even because I, I don't believe Trump will be on the ballot in 2020. But when really? people ask me, what does that mean? I don't really know what that means. Mm. Because I don't know if Pence takes over or is Pence too corrupt to take over. Do they push Nikki Haley in now, which is what I've been hmm. saying that they should do for a couple years now, because now she's burst onto the scene. Does Pelosi slash president, like, I don't actually know if I'm correct and, like, he's not on the ballot. I don't really know what exactly unfolds or how we get there. Hey, did you notice, by the way, that uh, why is Gordon Sondland smiling like Private Pyle from, uh, from Full Metal Jacket? Like, <laughs> did, you, did you notice that? Like, Vincent D'Onofrio? Like, what... what like, what the hell was he smiling at? Totally, it like, wasn't the first thing that came. Now that you said it, though, I'm going to always see it. <laughs> yeah, like, like, yeah, like, what? Yeah, I mean, I can't say it any better. Like, I look at him, and all I saw was full metal jacket. Like, are you, what are you smiling at? Yeah, that's what I was having with the Mahoney <laughs> from New York that kind of, like, knocked him back down to earth. Like, yeah, like, someone <laughs> needed to really get that smile off his face. Like, he's not, like, a hero. If yeah, he takes you three times, to be honest, and who knows, it might even be a fourth. On the horizon, like you're not a hero. What did you think of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman? That's the that's the man that uh, the person that stands out to me. They were all they all did a, their American duty, but he really stood out. What did you think of him? I thought it was very honorable and like and also just very brave. Like he acknowledged like his family's been threatened. He told his father not to worry. Like in America, you can always do the right thing. And I thought they really like. I'm stunned. And I'm not stunned by much with the current Republican Party, how just vicious they've talked about him. Mm -hmm. Like the idea, like he's a traitor, he was committing espionage, or it was uh, Senator Blackburn from Tennessee tweeting like vindictive vindmen. I'm like, this man, first of all, actually went to war, didn't pretend he had bones first to stay out of the war, comes in with his uniform and his medals that he earned, not like 
someone just handing Trump a purple heart <laughs> on the campaign. And again, you're choosing Trump over Vindman, who's not lying, is willing to testify under oath. Nobody that nobody ever close to Trump ever wants to do that. And again, you're just choosing Trump over Vindman, who didn't say anything wrong, who followed the proper protocols, who's like, for lack of a better expression, a good soldier. Mm. And like, they just totally just didn't want to hear what he had to say. And I thought that was probably, especially because of his veteran status, how mm. upsetting that was. I think in the history books, and frankly, I think it should be running if the Democrats had any kind of skill at messaging this would be running in a commercial, what you just said. The, a quote that I will always remember. Dad, do not worry. I'll be fine for telling the truth. I mean, if that doesn't, yep. if that doesn't grab you, I don't know what does. I remember because I, I, I read it first, and then I went back more because my teaching schedule was hard to like watch the impeachment hearing from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And like I read it. Even I, like, I'm not a crier, and I'm like, even I got like choked up reading it. Then I watched it, and I'm like, wow. Like, yeah, and and I hope they run with that. I'm very big on, the, like, the Democrats. This is, like, the first time, like, they haven't gotten in their own way. I feel like they're very big mm-hmm. on, like, kind of getting in their own way with missteps and everything. So I hope that they run that quote and run that statement, like, and just drill it to all Americans. I'm with you. It it really exemplifies the, the entire situation, uh, even leaving out the part about his family. I'll be fine for telling the truth. Isn't that really what this whole thing is about? I'll be fine. Uh, yep, that's and that's what this country is supposed to be. So, and but the fact that he feels threatened, the fact that the whistleblower is under you know constant federal protection, that just shows you how low we have sunk hmm. as a society. Jeremy, anything else you want to uh, promote? Everybody uh, promote sell Manafort. Anything, uh, you know, uh, your uh, social media, your class? Uh, um, I don't know if I have much to promote. My Twitter handle is Jeremy Levine 92 the year before 1992. Um, I'll be teaching a, another summer course at NYU for about five or six weeks. Uh, again, it'll probably be in either June or July about the Syrian civil war, the U.S. and Russian involvement, our betrayal of the Kurds, which is a whole other thing. Um, and then just like what I usually tell students, because a lot of times they ask me, even if it's not in that Molokai, just in general, because they know I know a lot about this and I follow it, like what's going to happen or like I'm nervous, concerned. I always tell people, I promise things will get better and I promise things will calm down in this country. It's just, it might get a worse, a little uglier and a little nastier before we get there. Uh, you can view it as we have to hit rock bottom, which might be hard if we didn't hit it, or maybe mm-hmm. we keep scraping along rock bottom. But eventually, it will come down. Justice, even if it's slow, will prevail, and we can and will move past this very dark chapter of American history. I guess that's the final thought, so I'll kind of leave it there with. I also realized I just used Manafort as a verb, like, hey, go ahead and Manafort that for me. Like, I <laughs> asked if you wanted a Manafort. I want to I I tell the truth, though, so I don't want a Manafort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead and uh, Manafort some, uh, some cigarettes for me down at the... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, those are wise words. Uh, Jeremy, it's absolutely great having you on Counterintelligence, and uh, I hope you'll come back soon. Thank you for listening. Follow Forensic News on Twitter at Forensic Newsnet. Counterintelligence is at IntelPod. My personal account is Eric LeVay. Support Forensic News on Patreon. Subscribe to Counterintelligence everywhere you listen to podcasts. This is Eric LeVay, and this is Counterintelligence.